Go ahead and please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. The church Bibles, uh, you will find uh, this section we're going to read is page 1421. 1421. For those uh, who are here for the first time, we are going through uh, the Gospel of Matthew, we've been going through that for uh, close to four plus years now. And uh, coming to the end of this Gospel, last week we saw verses 45 to 50 that describe the death of our Lord. And this week we're going to be looking at verses 51 through 56, passage that talks about what happened immediately after Jesus' death, but before his burial. So we're going to read these verses, pray, and then see what God has in store for us. Matthew 27. Let us read from verse 50 for the sake of the context here. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook The rocks split and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Let's uh, lay this text at the Lord's feet and ask him to accomplish what he has uh, planned to accomplish through these verses. Lord, help us as we lean on your spirit to See what you have in store for us. As in your wisdom, you've recorded these things that happened immediately after your death. Please help us to not only see what you have in store for us, but to have hearts that are willing to see the truths and the implications of those truths as to how they would apply in our lives and yield to them. May your spirit work in and through me and uh, in all of us, so that Jesus would be glorified through our obedience as a result of understanding and applying this text. In his name and for his sake, Father, we pray. Amen. You know, so far in the events surrounding the crucifixion and Jesus' death, we've seen nothing but mockery and rejection. It, It seems like the Prince of Darkness had won a major victory. But in the midst of this great darkness that we've been going through for the last few weeks now, beginning at the end of Matthew 26, where the mocking and the uh, rejection of Jesus started, and we saw throughout uh, chapter 27 so far. We've been going through that journey for a few weeks, but now we're going to see three bright lights shining through, even before the resurrection of Jesus himself. Three bright lights we see here shining through. First, we see the Father 
who seemed to have been totally silent to the cries of his son, now acting with great power. That's verses 51 through 53. Second, we see the Roman soldiers who crucified Jesus now trembling in terror and seeing him with new eyes. That's verse 54. Third, we also see a bright light when it comes to the disciples of Jesus, particularly those faithful women who were there by the cross even when others had abandoned. That's verses 55 through 56. So let's go through these three glorious events that Matthew records for us and see what comforting truths we can learn from each of those three events. First of all, notice how the father, so far the father seems to have been silent. And then the pinnacle of that silence was what we saw last week. Jesus crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And heaven's response, total silence. Total silence. It, 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 it reminds us, uh, you know, later in the week I was also reflecting uh, that the cry that uh, David cried in Psalm 22, which you, you walked us through that psalm uh, through the singing uh, today. That why, we can resonate with that sometimes. Why God am I going through this? Why this? Nothing makes sense. Evil is touted as good. Darkness substitute for light. Why? There's so many of us go through that why and sometimes we get answers later. Sometimes we'll never get those answers this side of heaven. And this is what makes Jesus an empathetic high priest as Hebrews 4 tells us. He went through that why. He went through that why. Why have you forsaken me? And now the father acts. The father acts from total silence to great display of his power in three ways. You see in verses 51 through 53, three powerful, miraculous events that happened. Miracle number one is the first part of verse 51, the tearing of the temple curtain. Notice verse 51 starts out by at that moment. Some translations have it as immediately. What, what went before? Verse 50, Jesus gave up his spirit. As soon as Jesus died, at that moment the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What is this curtain he's talking about? There are more than one curtains referenced in the temple but the one specifically that's addressed here is that curtain that separates the most holy place or the holy of holies from the holy place. The most holy place is where God manifested his presence. Only one person could go once a year into that place. That was the chief, the high priest. It was called the Day of Atonement. Even now, if you see in your calendar, you will find this Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur means Day of Atonement. That was the only day that the high priest could go after offering sacrifice for his own sin, then he would be able to enter in there. There was a curtain that divided that place 
to the other one. And this is torn from top to bottom. You say, what's the significance? This curtain is about 60 feet in height and 30 feet in width. It was, Exodus 26 gives you details, verses 31 through 37, that this curtain was a woven veil of blue, purple, and scarlet thread. It had actually the design of the cherubim on it, which was on the inside of the top of the mercy seat, sitting in that little box inside that was the Ark of the Covenant and the Broken Commandments, the Ten Commandments which were broken because man broke God's law and God comes to meet with sinful man through the means of a sacrifice. That's why the blood would be sprinkled on top of that box. This curtain was ripped into top to bottom. Who's doing this ripping? God the Father himself. What's the significance here? What God is saying is this. My son's death has now removed the barrier for everyone, Jew, Gentile, everyone can come to me through him. Everyone can come into my presence through my son. I've accepted my son's death for the sins of those who would put their faith in him, for those who would trust in him, Through my son, they can now have access into my presence. It doesn't matter what background. It doesn't matter how much you have sinned. It doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are. The door is wide open is what God's saying. The only condition is you have to come through my son. You have to come through my son. You see, Jesus, by his perfect life and by his perfect death, fulfilled all the sacrificial requirements that God had set forth in the Old Testament that was needed for sinful human beings to have a relationship with Him. No more need for animal sacrifices. No more the old way of worship. That's why with Jesus' death, the temple worship was ended. Forty years later, the temple itself will physically be destroyed. Once for all, Jesus has paid the price for all our sins, we have access into the Father's presence. That's the message that is being conveyed here. The staring of the curtain from top to bottom, God is saying, it's open. Not just for Jews. Everyone, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, rich, poor, young, old, doesn't matter. You can come. You can The writer of Hebrews connects this tearing of the veil. He connects this tearing of the veil immediately after Jesus' death to these glorious realities that I just mentioned, being welcomed into his presence. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. I'll give you the page number in a minute. Hebrews chapter 9, we're going to look at verses 11 through 12. Hebrews 9, page 1712 in the church Bibles here. Hebrews 9, look at verse 11. The writer is talking about Jesus once for all paying the price for our sins and because of his death, we have full redemption for our sins and not only that, we have complete access to the Father's presence. Verse 11, but when Christ came as a high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, 
that is to say, is not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. What the writer is saying is this. You have this temple here that's a physical representation of heaven. Heaven is the place where God resides. The temple is a picture of that. The holy of holies is separated from other places. In order for people to have access through that, it was they could only do it through one man, the chief, the high priest, and he had to go in there after offering a sacrifice for his own sins. The writer is taking that picture and saying, Jesus' death accomplished something bigger than that. This is when he says, not made with human hands, not part of this creation. He's referring to heaven. Jesus, by his death, has purchased redemption for you and me that gives us access right into heaven. That's why Paul could say in Ephesians 1, you are seated in the heavenly places spiritually. For those who put their faith in Christ, this is not talking about a mere earthly temple access. It's talking about you have access into God's presence because of Jesus' blood that was shed on the cross and the body that was given for us. If you turn to the next chapter, chapter 10 and verse 19, he makes, an even, he makes it even more clearer. In verse 19, he says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, not by ourselves, notice, by the blood of Jesus, we can go in there, we can go into God's presence, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. Do you see the connection now? This physical curtain that was torn points to his body that was given up and his blood that was shed. Through that, you have access into God's presence. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, here's the application. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. What he's saying is this. Jesus' sacrifice does not just merely give an external cleansing. It has the power to cleanse you on the inside. Sin brings a guilty conscience. Jesus' blood cleanses us from that. It deals with the inside. It gives a new heart, a new life. So the writer of Hebrews is connecting. When Jesus died, he says that barrier was broken. Access to God for every one of us through him. Through him. The writer says, you don't need to be weighed down in guilt and your failures. Son has paid the price and the father has accepted it. And the proof he himself tore the barrier apart, just took it in, threw it away. He said, you can go. You can, or you can come, you can come into my presence. So if you are here this morning, still far away from Jesus, God's call to you is this, come and accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Have your sins washed away by his blood. Have new life. 
Don't keep living and wallowing in your sins. It may give you much pleasure now. But it will leave you with a guilty conscience. Come to him. God has opened the way. He initiated this. And he says, come. Come as you are. Come as you are. That's the message of the first miracle here, the tearing of the temple curtain. Father is telling clearly, the barrier is removed. Come, have a relationship with me. Look at miracle number two, second part of verse 51. The earthquake and the splitting of the rocks. The earth shook, the rocks split. This is God's way of communicating that the repercussion of his son's death has affected all creation. His death, the father is communicating to us, is the death of all deaths. It's like no other death in all the world. By the way, this is the first of two earthquakes that that would happen back to back. One now at his death and another earthquake at his resurrection, Matthew 28, verse 2. You see, the Jews often equated Earthquake as symbols of God's judgment on the wicked when he comes to deliver his people. For example, this is what David writes. He describes how in a time of distress, he called to the Lord for help and how God displayed his anger on his enemies through an earthquake as he rescued David. That's what David says. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to my God for help. From his temple he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. The earth trembled and quaked and the foundations of the mountains shook. They trembled because he was angry. Psalm 18 verses 6 through 7. And the psalmist Asaph, he's looking back years after God brought his people through the Red Sea. And as God brought his people through the Red Sea, as he rescued them but drowned Pharaoh's armies again, there was an earthquake. This is what Asaph writes for us. Psalm 77 verse 18. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. So you can see, earthquake was always associated with judging the wicked as well as delivering the righteous. So in this connection here, God is taking the son's soul to be with him, rescue. He's judging the wicked. The earthquake the, the second one that will follow, that's God bringing the resurrection to effect and by that declaring judgment pronounced on Satan and all the wicked. The resurrection is the ultimate proof of God's victory over sin. The Bible also reminds us earthquakes will be a part of his judgments before he sends Jesus to come and set up his kingdom. You don't need to turn to it, just listen to this. Revelation 16, 18 says, Then there came flashes of lightning, rumbling peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. Jesus said, Once again, heavens and the earth will be shook. As he comes to set up his unshakable kingdom, he's going to shake the present heavens and the present earth. And the only way at that time to escape that judgment is to find refuge in Jesus before that happens. 
the Old Testament prophet Joel talks about that coming earthquake. And he says the only way someone could escape that judgment that God's going to bring about with that earthquake is to find refuge in the Lord. This is what Joel says in Joel 3.16. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the heavens will tremble, but the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. Yes, not just the earth, not just earthquake, even heavens will tremble. The only way to escape that is to find refuge in Jesus Christ. So the message of the second miracle here, the earthquake and the splitting of the rocks is simply this, run to Jesus for refuge before it is too late. Run to Jesus for refuge before it is too late. If not, there is no escaping God's full and final judgment that is yet to come. Miracle number three. The tombs breaking open and the rising of many believers to life. That's verses 52 and 53. Matthew alone describes this particular miracle. Look at verse 52. And the tombs broke open The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Here's the preview of all previews. Other gospel writers, they wait till Easter, what we call as Easter, the resurrection Sunday, to talk about the resurrection. But Matthew, he wants to say that in Jesus' death, death died. Death was killed. He, he cannot wait till Sunday. He's just talking about it even now. Augustine, the early church father, said this. Jesus died because it was expedient that by his death he might kill death. God died that an exchange might be affected by a kind of heavenly contract that man might not see death. What an exchange. He's right. What an exchange. Jesus died not only to kill death, but also to give life, spiritual and physical life in the coming age to dead people like you and me. Once for all by his death, Jesus broke the power of death. Death, that final enemy that keeps people in fear and bondage has been defeated. And that's the great comfort we have. This is opening of the graves after Jesus died would have also reminded the Jewish people of one of God's promises in the Old Testament. What was that promise? Many of you would be familiar. In Ezekiel 37, there's this passage about this dry bones. Dry bones. This is, you, you, you can turn to Ezekiel 37 if you'd like as, I'm, uh, as I'll explain the context here a little bit. Ezekiel 37, page um, 1240 is about God's people in exile as a result of their disobedience. And God through the prophet Ezekiel is comforting his people by giving them a promise, I'm going to bring you back from exile. So God is taking Ezekiel to this valley of dry bones, remains of dead people. And right in front of Ezekiel, God is doing this miracle there. He's bringing all these bones, dead bones together. He's putting flesh together, everything, and then breathing life into them. 
that's a metaphor. Here, in Jesus' case here, that is used to point out that just as God brought life to those people, brought them back from exile, God would keep his prophecy, it's pointing to a bigger thing. God will raise those of his children who die in faith, he will raise them with new and glorified bodies. That's the picture. This preview that we get, it's a preview of this coming glorious reality. All believers will be raised. This is just a sample. This is just a sample. And this is a miracle that should give us great comfort, meaning death will not have the final say for all who belong to Jesus, but a glorious resurrection awaits us. Obviously, these verses pose many questions that we cannot have all the answers to. For example, who are these people that Matthew says were physically raised to life? Obviously, they were Old Testament believers because the church has not started yet. That is in Acts 2. These were Old Testament believers. Many of them, we don't know their identity. Many think it's Abraham, Isaac, the great patriarchs. We're not given that in the text. But we are told people recognize them. How do they recognize? We don't have an answer. It's like uh, uh, Peter, James and John recognizing Moses and Elijah in the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses and Elijah lived long before Peter, James and John. Again, that's why we call that as a miracle. Another question arises. Were they raised to life immediately after Jesus died but came out of the tombs only after Jesus' resurrection? Many think that's the case. Or... Were they raised to life after Jesus' resurrection and came out of the tombs and appeared to people? Minority think this is the case. Why? Because the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 23, Christ is the first to rise and he is the first fruits and after that others who put their faith in him. So according to them, this should be translated more along the lines of the bodies of many holy people who had died after Jesus' resurrection were raised to life and came out of the tombs and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. I tend to lean a little bit more on the first one, that they were raised to life, but they appeared to the people after Jesus' resurrection. Again, that poses the other question. What were they doing those three days? Were they just remaining in the tombs? And another question, what kind of bodies did they have? Did they have glorified bodies or temporary physical bodies? A lot of questions. I promise you one thing. You will get all the answers in heaven. I don't know. I don't know. I know I've been saying this, I don't know for the past few weeks. Maybe think, why are we even coming here? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but I think the Bible gives this record not so that we'll have answers to those things, but to encourage us this one comforting truth. We will be raised bodily because Jesus' death, Jesus' death takes care of, takes care of all our problems. He has defeated death once for all. That, that fear that grips us no longer needs to grip us. That's the point of this. We have a glorious resurrection 
body that awaits us. This this week, uh, I had taken my mom to see a eye doctor. And one of the things he was uh, telling was, you know, you know, you are 80 plus years and your eye is not going to be the same way it was when you were in your 20s. Just because you put running shoes, good running shoes that a 20-year-old athlete might have, it's not going to make you run like the 20-year-old. And he sat there explaining that to her. I'm sitting there, you know, this passage is in my mind. I'm thinking, you know, waiting that glorious reality. Same thing, right? A week ago when we were, I mentioned last week, walking down the hospital in Hamilton, there will come a time when we will not need any hospitals. We will not need anything because we will have a glorious body free from sin first and foremost. That's, that's the main attraction. But the other side benefits are no more pain, no more sickness, no more sorrow. So that's, that's what this miracle is designed to teach us. And then in, this, in an extended way, God is also telling us, if you have to give your life for the gospel's sake, don't worry. I will give you a new body anyway. Just as I gave my son, or I will give my son, which you will see, glorified body. It's the same body of Jesus, but now it's glorified I will give you. They put him to death. I raised him. Even if they put you to death, I will raise you. And that's the truth that moved the apostles to even give their lives for the gospel. That's the truth that moves lives of many believers since that time to endure and proclaim the gospel and live it out without any fear. It's the promise of the resurrection. It's that comforting reality that God is teaching us through this third, third, third miracle. So, curtain in the temple torn. All barriers removed. Earthquakes, rocks splitting. Judgment is coming. Only ways find refuge in Jesus Christ. Tombs breaking. Many believers appearing in physical bodily form. Reminding us, comforting us. The best is yet to come. Don't give up. Don't turn your back on Jesus. Don't lose heart. Keep pressing forward. One more day, you're closer to that reality. So that's the first bright light here, the Father acting in power. Second event, the second bright light here we see in this passage is the Roman soldiers, along with the centurion who crucified Jesus, now trembling in terror and seeing Jesus with new eyes. I believe it was mainly the earthquake and what went before that, the darkness and Jesus' loud cries that moved them. The curtain in the temple was torn, but they did not see the tombs, the bodies coming out of the tombs yet. That is very clear. Even if they were raised, the coming out was clearly after Jesus' resurrection. There's no doubt about that. The question is, when were they raised? So he wouldn't have seen that. Verse 54 says, When the centurion and those with them who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Keep in mind, these were battle-hardened soldiers. This is not the first crucifixion they would have overseen. They would have seen many. But there was something different about Jesus' crucifixion. The way he reacted, 
the darkness that was there, though those loud cries, and then in the end with a loud cry, it is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. All those things conveyed something to them. And what was the message that was conveyed? Fear, terror. This is no ordinary being here that we crucified. Luke tells us, they say, he was a righteous man, innocent man. Is that all that they had? This is a righteous, innocent man. I think it's more than that. They understood he is no ordinary human being. Now, does that automatically mean they, their confession, he is the son of God? Literally, it is, he is a son of God, not the son of God. Is this a saving confession like how you and I would say? Or was it just this is a divine being? Because Roman, Romans were very superstitious. They looked at Caesars as a divine being. Oh, Caesar is a son of God, son of the gods. Is that something along those lines they looked at? Let's try and see what the other gospels tell about this confession. Perhaps we can make a little more sense out of this because Matthew doesn't give anything beyond that. Mark tells us that the very next book, if you're back in Matthew, uh, move to the next book, Mark, or if you're still in Ezekiel. I didn't even read the Ezekiel passage, did I? <laughs> Let me read the Ezekiel passage, okay? Totally missed that. So I'm going to read that. And uh, Ezekiel 37 verses 11 through 14. If you missed your place there, just, just listen to it. In Ezekiel 37, this is what God uh, speaks to the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel tells us this. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Verse 12, therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. So God was telling the people at that time, I'm going to bring you back from exile. By Jesus' death, through Jesus' death, as God opened the graves, what God is saying is, I'll bring you back in glorified, resurrected bodies. It's that connection that I believe God was telling the Jewish people and now us who live even beyond the New Testament gives a lot more about the resurrection realities pointing to us. Again, in every aspect of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, we see various parts of the Old Testament being fulfilled. So it was a promise just as I promised in Ezekiel, I brought you back from exile. But that is a picture of a greater reality to come, which we all wait for. Mark 15. Sorry about that. Mark 15, about the centurion and the soldiers' response here. Verse 39. Mark only talks about the centurion's response. Notice verse 39, what... Uh, what we read here, and when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, that's an important phrase here, saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. That phrase, saw how he died, that is a key phrase here, in the manner in which he died, that's what he's saying. I think Jesus, the way he died, 
again caused the centurion to say, this, this person is different. We did something wrong, not to just an ordinary human being, to a supernatural being, to a divine being. Luke, in Luke 23, verses 47 through 48, the very next book, Luke 23, page 1506, look at verse 47. As soon as Jesus breathed his last, verse 46, verse 47, the centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. Praised God. Again, that's another clue for us. Praised God. Again, when we look at this phrase, praised God, we always equate that as coming from the lips of believers. Now, yes, the gospel, gospel records indicate True believers often praising God. For example, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, when he got his sight, when Jesus healed him as he was on his way to Jerusalem, Luke tells us that he followed Jesus praising God. Luke 18 verse 43. Praising God. So that's praising God phrase is used of a person who truly put their faith in Jesus Christ. But there are other instances where the praise of people, praising God, was not always in keeping with saving faith, just a human response to God's power displayed through Jesus. For example, in Matthew 9, when Jesus healed a paralytic right in front of the crowd, this was their response. Matthew 9 verse 8, when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God who had given such authority to man. Again, later in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 31, when crowds saw Jesus doing many miracles, many healings, this was their response. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking and the blind seeing, and they praised the God of Israel. Matthew chapter 15, verse 31. They praised. And you're all familiar. On that Sunday, the Palm Sunday, crowds were praising God, saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. And the same crowds that praised God five days later were screaming what? Crucify him. Crucify him. So my point again is this. Not everyone who praised God were true believers. Which comes down to the question. This centurion back to Matthew 27 and the soldiers. Was it saving faith that made them say this is the son of God? Or was it just an expression like the other unbelievers? His words in and of themselves are not explicitly conveying because as I said, he's not saying the son of God like how we would acknowledge. Based on Mark, the way he saw Jesus died, and Luke, I tend to lean towards the side that his was a true saving confession. I'm not dogmatic about it. Again, the point is not about whether his confession was genuine or not. The point is, Jesus' death must cause fear and terror for those who are still far away from him. I lean toward the fact that this was true salvation to show that Matthew wants 
his readers to see even Gentiles were included in God's salvation plan. Right at the beginning, wise men, Gentiles, they come to saving faith. And throughout the Gospels we've seen so far, Jesus reaching out to the Gentiles. I think this is another proof that God's saving grace is not limited just to the Jews. The temple curtain tearing way is open to all. I think this is that. And this also is, if, if that is true, this is also Jesus saying, I will save people under all kinds of circumstances. On the cross, I'll save people. The foot of the cross, I'll save people. Unlikely people getting saved in unlikely means. That's Jesus. So I tend to lean on that side. Again, it's not a make or break. But the point is this. Jesus' death should cause us to fear God's wrath and run to him. Martin Luther, the great reformer, he believed that the soldier's confession was a true confession. He said it was a sign of the power of the death of Christ. The blood of Christ, he said, not only wakens dead bodies, verse 52, people rising from the tombs, but also sinners' souls. He sees that as a true confession. Again, the point of this is these cosmic disturbances, if you want to put it that way, earthquakes and all that should cause people to fear God. Bible talks about during the time of the great tribulation in Revelation 14 and verse 6, God would send an angel who would proclaim the gospel in midair. And you know what the message would be? Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea and the springs of water. Fearing God is the first step of glorifying God. And that fear of God moves one to understand I am a sinner. I've sinned against this God who is to be feared. This great judge, he's going to execute serious judgment. No longer can I play games with him. I must turn from my sin and run to that one way he has given for me. His son, whose body was given on that cross, whose blood was shed on the cross. I must find refuge by repenting of my sins and putting my faith in Jesus Christ. Before it is too late, that's the message. As we read this, God wants us to especially for those of you who are still far away you may have been born in a Christian home exposed to Christian truths all your life but that doesn't mean you're really saved if you have never repented of your sins truly never felt the conviction I'm a sinner not for one or two sins but I'm a sinner as such condemned to hell because I've grieved my creator And I see this God is a God to be feared. I want to turn my life around. I want to come to him. Because in Revelation it says those people feared but it was too late for many of them. And you and I might die today, tomorrow. People focus so much on the end events. We might not even be living there. Whether you believe in pre-tribulation or post-tribulation, that's not what I'm getting into. My point is, every one of us should treat this day as my last day and be prepared to meet the Lord.
The only way to be prepared. True fear of God should move us to fall at his feet and say, Lord, save me. Save me. So two bright lights we've seen so far. One, Father acting in great power, displaying those three great miracles, tearing of the temple curtain, earthquake, splitting of the rocks, physically raising believers from their graves. Second bright light, fear should be the response when we see what Jesus went through on the cross. For it's a fear that should move us to turn to him. We're not done yet. One more bright light. And I'll tell you this third one. I was almost, almost moved to have that as a separate message. I was going to almost text you. I think this is, this is really so bright. I saw this with a new brightness as I was working through this. Because everyone seems to have abandoned him. Right? But you see this small group of this faithful woman by the cross. Matthew says here that they were far from the cross first, but John tells us they were near the cross. So maybe initially they were far, but as Jesus was dying, they're starting to come nearer and nearer. You see, you see these faithful women, how they served Christ, how they ministered. They were there. And then what is interesting is their names are given in a time when women's names would not be given much prominence. The New Testament again and again talks about the importance of the ministry of women and how God sees it, how God cherishes it. Look at verses 55 through 56, starting in 55. Many women were there, many, watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Luke 8 verses 1 through 3 also talks about during Jesus' earthly ministry, women were there providing for his needs. That word care that you see in verse 55 is the word from which we get the word deacons has the idea of serving, waiting on tables, ministering for the needs of God's people. What a practical ministry these dear women did for the one who had no place to lay his head. They were there all along. They were there all along. Matthew gives their names. Look at verse 56. Among them were Mary Magdalene. She was the one out of whom Jesus cast out seven demons, Luke chapter 8 and verse 2. And interestingly, Mary Magdalene also appears in the next chapter where we read her encountering the risen Christ. Think about her life, where she was. She's the first one to whom Jesus appeared, the risen Lord appeared. And if you remember in John 4, that woman who had this sexually immoral life, Five husbands, the one you're living with, not your husband. She's the first one to whom Jesus revealed, I am the Messiah. He bypassed all the religious elite. Isn't that amazing? Now you understand why I wanted to work a sermon on that. And I think I could have done even a two-part message on that. But because this is something we overlook very easily, it's given there again to encourage us to serve him. That's the point. That's the point. And then you have Mary, the mother of James, and Joseph also called James the Younger, according to Mark 15, 40. And then notice, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Her name is actually Salome. Mark 15, verse 40 tells us. You want to know something interesting? The last time we see the mother of Zebedee's sons is in Matthew 20 
and verses 20 and 21. You know what she was doing there? She was asking Jesus, grant that one of these sons of mine may sit at your right and at your left in your kingdom. It was a very carnal request. The sons obviously influenced her, other gospels tell us. And the mother is like, you know, could you grant one to sit this side, one to sit that side? But now she is here. You say, what's, what's the big deal about that? The big deal is this. You can recover from your failures. You can recover from our failures. She was there on the way to Jerusalem. That was her mindset. But now at the cross, mind is changed. Jesus' death speaks so powerfully to her. She's there. She's there. There's always forgiveness with Jesus. That's the beauty. Always forgiveness. John in his gospel tells us Mary, Jesus' mother, and Mary's sister were also present at the foot of the cross. John 19 verses 25 through 27. So there were many women, many women that were witnessing here and many women also would be witnesses of his resurrection. Jerome, an early church father, made this comment with regards to the woman who stayed by the cross. This is what he said. When the others had forsaken the Lord, the women persevered in their office. So they merited to be the first to see the risen one. They stood there. They were blessed with that. Think about how the hearts of these women might have been. On the one hand, they wanted to move away from the cross. But on the other hand, they were so moved by the cross, they couldn't move. And think of Mary's heart, the mother of Jesus. Simeon prophesied when Mary brought, Mary and Joseph brought Jesus when he was eight days old to the temple. Simeon in Luke chapter 2 verse 35 says, yes, he'll be the cause for the rising of many and the fall of many, but also he would say, a sword would pierce your own soul. This is that sword as she sees her beloved son. Think about having Jesus as a son. Never once did he disobey Mary. He couldn't tell. I know some of, her, some of the mothers are thinking, I have no idea what you're talking about, looking at my sons. But think of Mary. Never once did he speak a harsh word to her. Even on the cross, he shows care for his mother. And now she stands helpless. Helpless. Watching her son die such a horrific death. How terrible it must have been for her. Again, what's the point of this being given to us? The point is this. Do for Jesus whatever you can without fearing any repercussions. Do your best for Jesus whatever spheres God places you in. That's the point here. Yes, they're standing at the cross. They couldn't save Jesus. But they're there with him. They're there. And in moments of sorrow, isn't that the biggest thing? The presence of people sometimes. Sometimes we can do things materially and physically and we ought to. But there are times when 
it's beyond the physical and the material. It's just the presence. I weep with those who are weeping, just as I rejoice with those who are rejoicing. And I think this, this message is lost to a large extent in the Christian community today because we don't put our needs below the needs of others. We put our needs above the needs of others. We give, we give Jesus and by extension others the fringe of our time and our resources. Not the first fruits, not the best of what we can offer. And that does grieve the Holy Spirit. It does grieve the Holy Spirit. So this should motivate us to put Christ above all things. And Jesus is not looking for perfect people. Look at Mary Magdalene. Ashes to glory. Everyone discarded her. You're worthless. Jesus sees worth in the broken ones. He sees the worth. He knows. In your tears, he's there with you. When we see the death of Christ, it should motivate us. You went through so much for me and still I'm living for myself, my own selfish pleasures, my own prominence, my own position, my own securities. How can that be? How can that be? We neglect reading our Bibles. We neglect praying. We neglect fellowship. Because we are so busy with all our other things. Even sometimes it could be so-called things of God. But it's really our own interests is what we're putting ahead. Listen to the helpful and yet convicting words once again from the writer of Hebrews. In how he urges believers to persevere in the faith. And in their service to the Lord. This is what he says in Hebrews chapter 6 verses 10 through 12. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. It's a beautiful text there verse 10. Writer says, God is not going to forget the work and the love that you've shown him. Then he says, as you have helped his people and continue to help them. So love for God is manifested visibly through our love for others. That as is an important word there. As you have shown love for his people and helping them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end. Meaning don't get tired. Just because you don't see much results. Keep pressing on. Don't get tired. So that what you hope for may be fully realized. And what is it we hope for? This glorious reality of the resurrection, living with God in His presence, serving Him free of all sin, worshipping Him the way He ought to be worshipped. That's what we're hoping for. We don't want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience or perseverance inherit what has been promised. That is why he says endure to the end. When trials come, these Hebrew believers, the converts, they're pressed down. 
lot of suffering. They were like giving up. And the writer of Hebrews, one of his goals in writing that letter was to encourage persevering Christians. Don't give up. Don't give up. Continue to run the race. He would call them later on in Hebrews 12. Keep running the race. Don't give up. Don't become lazy. Don't let the world attract you more. Started the good fight. Continue to keep fighting. Don't give up. Don't give up. And these people, these women standing there, it's a reminder. It's a reminder. No matter what repercussion, we're going to stay. We're going to stay. And that's, that's the message God tells us. When we look at Jesus' death, the way he died, the way he lived, doesn't he deserve our all? Yes. Yes. Obviously, you know, our, our, our physical strength, our, our, sometimes our financial uh, resources, they change over time. But then we adapt accordingly and still serve him and serve others. There's always a ministry for the believer till the day he or she dies. Always a ministry. We must faithfully fulfill it. So, Yes, while the suffering of our Lord as he shed his blood for us brings great grief to our souls, the backdrop of this great darkness, three bright events we see before his burial and the glorious resurrection. Father acting in great power, three miraculous signs, tearing the temple curtain. You have access, welcome. Nothing stops you but you from coming to me is what the Father is saying. I've given you my son. Come through him. The earthquake reminds this God is not a God to be trifled with. Turn to him. And the tombs breaking open. Believers being raised physically reminds us it will be worth it. You will be raised one day from the dead as well. The second event there even hardened of soldiers. Their knees were trembling in fear. This is not a God again we can be casual about. We must fear Him. Even believers fear. Yes, I get the reverence and awe for sure, but also there's a fear. And look at the loving Faithful woman. What an encouragement they are. So again, it's not just for women, for all of us. To faithfully serve him with the strength he gives. As First Peter 4.11 says, we serve with the strength he gives. And with the opportunities he provides, saying, Lord, all I have is yours. I put it all on the altar. You use it as you see fit. Sin and death are humanity's two greatest problems. The good news is this. Jesus by his death conquers both. Sin was defeated on the cross and the effects of sin which is death was also conquered when Jesus died. Jesus' death was not only strong enough to tear the curtain of the Holy of Holies but it was also strong enough to open tombs and raise people physically to show that he has the power to give the life that is truly life. 
Let's rest in Jesus' finished work on the cross. Let's keep pressing forward until that day when our faith will become sight. We will have those bodies that God has promised us and all our tears will be wiped away. No more pain, no more sorrow. Let's keep faithfully pressing on. Again, if you're far away from Jesus, please, where you are, call upon him. He will forgive your sins and give you new life. Father, we just thank you for your son's death and what you teach us immediately after his death. Even before his body would be laid in the grave, you went into action. We can see it, Lord. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for dying. Thank you for living a perfect life in our place. Thank you for dying the Thank you for dying the death we deserve. We have hope. Help us to keep clinging to that. In your name I pray, Lord. Amen.